Welcome everyone to a, another episode of our Cause Health series. Uh, this um, part of the series focusing on applications and integration into clinical practice. Uh, today I'm joined uh, by uh, the wonderful uh, clinician, researcher and educator, uh, Dr. Oliver Thompson. Uh, Oliver, how's it going? Yeah, good, thanks. Good, thanks for having me. No problem at all. Thanks for, for coming on. Um, so for for people who don't know you, can you tell us a bit about yourself, who you are, what you do? Uh, but I think probably the, the big question is how you, you came across and became involved in Course Health. Sure. So um, where do I start? So I've got a few different little hats, as we all have now, right? No one ever just does one job. We all do a bit of podcasting, a bit of online stuff, a bit of uh, kind of traditional work. But I suppose I'm called an osteopath. So I'm, I'm, my professional title clinically is an osteopath in London. And I work a couple of days a week out of a clinic, uh, which I kind of run with my wife. And there's a kind of bunch of different clinicians, podiatrists, physios, osteos, massage, kind of traditional, pretty standard multidisciplinary clinics. So I work there. Um, and then I've got an academic role as an associate professor at one of the biggest osteopathy kind of university colleges in London called the UCO. And so I work there and, and most of my work there is around research supervision. I do a bit of research and some research education. So I mainly teach qualitative research and a bit of evidence-based practices and clinical reasoning. And what else? And then a bit like you, I've kind of got into podcasting since the pandemic, which you know, 18 months ago I started the Words Matter podcast, which which kind of looked which would just to get me give me something to do to get me in my pajamas in the morning working from home well, I know I, that's a lie I still wore my pajamas um whilst podcasting but I, I just yeah it was just a great way to, to to connect with people and and to have I conversations I found interesting and give people a platform to to say some some brilliant things so and with that there's an online education around language and communication in relation to MSK and back pain so I suppose they're my three main three main kind of hats or four hats and so in terms of how I got into Cause Health, so Cause Health has a, has a kind of pretty strong connection with osteopathy. So a late colleague of mine, Professor Stephen Tymon at the UCO, was a founding member of, of Cause Health. And he was, a, he was an osteopath, but actually more of a healthcare philosopher. And so was in the mix with the Cause Health group and Rani and Stephen Mumford. So, so Cause Health has kind of been tied to osteopathy in its early form. And so I'd been to a few conferences, one in London, one in Oxford, and was listening with intent and really excited by this, by this way which made old stuff seem new, or at least to reconceptualize things like the biopsychosocial model and evidence-based practice, which I was pretty familiar with, but just made it, I suppose, just laid it out in a slightly different way and gave it much more underpinning. So then and so then, then I went to a few conferences and then just was brave enough to ask Rani Lil Anyum to come on my podcast last year. And we spoke about uh, course health and dispositionism and then um, was fortunate enough to, to, to be able to kind of platform the book. So the, 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 the course health book on the show where I did an episode with each of the authors of each chapter. So there was 15 episodes. It was kind of like an audio book, if you like, of the book. Um, but the book's better, but it's a nice kind of co, um, it kind of supplements the book nicely. So that was my connection. And now I've kind of stayed kind of matey with them since. Yeah, I think that that's definitely something to to mention is 
is your podcast series. Uh, I feel like, and, and I've described it um, in many ways, this sort of series is quite like, um, you know, the words matter light version of, of cause health. Um, we've tried to keep ideas sort of very um, sort of basic, really applicable to everyone. But if, if people are definitely interested, I mean, your, um, your podcast is, is pretty much uh, like a book club um, for mm-hmm. each of the, each of the chapters, you can get sit down with the authors, you get to go through, they flesh out ideas. And as someone who's listened to, to all the episodes has gone through, it's been tremendously helpful um, to, to, to understand the, the, the book or just that little bit more. Um, and it also does make it sometimes a little bit easier to read because sometimes you have to go, you, you read the paragraphs a couple of times. So, I think the, the thing that you've, you've said as well is that you're really across every part of healthcare. Um, you're um, not only in a clinic actually practicing, but you're also at university, you're doing research, um, you're educating. So you're really seeing a good um, spread of how everything will be, you know, every, how, you know, cause health or really anything is going to affect healthcare. You're seeing it at every sort of point. Mm-hmm. So I guess a really good sort of broad question um to start with is how as uh understanding sort of course health and and more about their approach to evidence-based medicine changed not only your practice but your your research and you know how how you teach um yes i've obviously thought about that and i did some kind of amas on my own podcast about this i still i'm still quite sure how it's changed i think starting out with course health you know i was a when I encountered course health, I was a, well, I am a qualitative researcher, so I was never good at maths and statistics. Like I just wasn't good at that, and like I managed to bumble through it my undergrad and postgrad. But I was always more interested in, in terms of evidence, kind of stories. It's much more kind of conceptual story based. I could understand, you know, I could understand people's predicaments, or, or I could understand um, the nature of illness or healthcare or pain by reading qualitative work and doing qualitative research. So when we talk about qualitative research, it's mainly interviews, focus groups, observations. So typically non-numerical data and the researcher is part of the research process. So rather than some researcher being quite distant, collecting evidence in the form of surveys or kind of various measurement uh, tools and being quite objective, qualitative research is very much about stories and being with that person constructing evidence, if you like. So I was always pretty much primed to love course health. I mean, I was always going to love it, wasn't it? Because I, <laughs> it, it was. So I was always going to onboard with that. So, so, but what course health did do, you know, coming to course health with that view, it, the, the pyramid or hierarchy of evidence, I think you've talked about before, where it places a certain type of evidence at the top of that pyramid as being more reliable, more robust, just better knowledge, essentially this, epistemological hierarchy where rcts and systematic reviews at the top and expert opinion and qualitative stuff was was in the the bottom bottom of the hierarchy i was that never always bothered me because it was like well that the means the research i'm doing isn't good quality it's not important it doesn't change practice and then course health came along and said no no no, just get about that hierarchy we've got our own kind of way of viewing evidence and we view qualitative research so kind of narrative-based research story-based research subjective research as equal or as not, if not more important, if you like, than randomized controlled trials. So it, it just, so I guess, it, and it gave me an argument 
and some underpinning as to why I should feel better about my career choices, or at least my 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 choice of research. I mean, at least my, my it gave me a stronger argument to to kind of put forward the value of qualitative research. That it wasn't just good, it wasn't just a nice way of presenting people's illness or health experiences. But as Rani has talked about, has there's some causal properties or causal information in there. So from a research side of thing, side of thing, it just kind of strengthened my argument. And again, from a clinical practice side of thing, it just, I think as it did for many clinicians, it just, like we were, a lot of us were doing something which looked like dispositionism before, like we were interested in the physical features or properties of the person, biomechanics, kind of structural stuff. Like we didn't completely reject that. But then we were also interested in their story, their context, their environment, social, kind of emotional, psychological stuff. And But we weren't, you know, the, the, the tricky thing is how to put all this together and how, you know, how how you weigh up one thing against the other and how you then act on that. So I think Course Health went some way to giving some sort of framework about how you proceed. But if anything, it didn't really give you much of a direction to proceed or give me much of a direction how to proceed clinically. It just said, it's okay. Like it's okay to be confused. It's okay to be uncertain. And it's okay not to have the answer because there often isn't an answer. These things often defy a single, single answer. So it just generally made me feel better about stuff that I'm currently doing. Um, that's not obviously that a bit of a joke, but it, but that was important because it gave me, it gave me, it gives, it gives clinicians the ability to manage that uncertainty better and to ask slightly different questions of their clinical practice. I think that's a, that's an interesting sort of point that you're sort of talking about because a lot of clinicians or, or people that will uh, that will come to clinical practice that will be practicing day to day will have be very, more more well versed. I guess the question, the thing is that we're probably not as well versed in research as we should be um, as clinicians, uh, and and part of that is to due to that focus on you know quantitative measures that you know it's all about the surveys, the answers, and there is that disparity between. The, the results that, that we get from those surveys and, and the reality in the clinic. So as a, as a qualitative researcher, you know, as you said, you know, it wasn't a huge jump yeah. uh, to, to start to, to, to these sort of messages. Um, but I think that's, that's the interesting um, thing you're sort of pointing out. There's a lot of clinicians that we're doing this um, sort of by feeling sort of, mm. I, well, we're, you know, this person's coming in and telling us, um, something very unique, something that's not captured by the evidence, something that is uh, different to what we would expect. And we're yeah. adapting to that. And we just never had really a framework um, that, that goes with this. Um, so I'm wondering, you know, if you're, you know, you, you are teaching evidence-based medicine at, at the university to, to undergraduate uh, osteopaths has, how do you sort of communicate to, to students who are notoriously coming from high school or in society and um, are sort of brought up in this idea of right, wrong answers and we need certainty? Uh, how are you going communicating this sort of different framework and way of practicing where we're sort of we, we don't have the answers and that's what's sort of being highlighted by the by by this framework? Yeah, it's a good, good question. I think. Um... I think there's a few kind of tricks. I mean, to try and get students engaged in research, in any kind of research is difficult, right? So, you know, I'm like the grim reaper when it comes to my lectures. You know, they, these are, you know, any healthcare students, they enroll on healthcare degrees because they want to 
typically typically do healthcare or be healthcare clinicians and they've got you know there's first lecture slides saying research methods and they're just like, oh. but to try and make try and convey some of these messages to, to students is i try bringing clinical you know experience and examples as, you know, as you said that there that the, the reliance on kind of quantitative statistical evidence with, to, to, to try and obtain some certainty usually just gives us more uncertainty. There are, there are very rarely kind of conclusive evidence for anything. So in the context of this very gray, gray areas, or most it's not in gray area, gray areas suggest that there are areas which are gray. It's all gray. The whole lot is gray, right? All the practice is gray. That you can give one intervention to one person that has the same set of symptoms, symptom characteristics, as another person, you give them the same intervention and they respond quite differently. Like that's weird. Like that doesn't like it's. I mean, you can you can dig up examples every you know every day where you've got patients which have the same sorts of back pain. I suppose in my case, clinically, they kind of have the same kind of movement characteristics, kind of symptom characteristics, same sort of neurology, and you can do one completely different you know one one different treatment approach. To, to, to the other one and they respond differently or they do respond the same like it's all just one big hodgepodge of uncertainty so i think presenting some of that uncertainty to students and they listen you think you're going to get the answers from you know kind of hard kind of sciences it's clear it's just not giving us the answers that we need or which is sufficient to, to, to navigate only with the only only with the information so I think partly just just giving examples of the inherent subjectivity and, and uncertainty within clinical practice, like it's there. And we need research approaches which can can access or kind of, you know, can feel out or map out some of that uncertainty or give us some information in light of uncertainty or that complexity. So that's the first thing. And the second thing is, what's the other thing is, is, yeah, I think talking about, so healthcare students often don't know that much about healthcare when they come on, they kind of know that, or physio does muscles and podiatrists, they do just like feet and osteos and chiros, they do the back. So that's their level, right? They might've been to one of these clinicians that had an experience with the patient, but often they don't really know. And then I kind of tell them about my a day in my practice when I just, you know, I say most of your practice are just talking to people and being in a room with the person and having, you know, there's only so, you know, technical skills alone and technical knowledge alone will only get you so far. Like you, you, it doesn't really, if you really want to connect and engage with that person and meet them somewhere and to, to give them an insight of who you are too, because that's really what we're doing in healthcare, like knowing the anatomy of the foot or the biomechanics of the spine doesn't really do it by itself. We've got to have some other sorts of knowledge or information which comes from a range of sources, whether it's the humanities and philosophy, whether it's arts, whether it's qualitative research, but these, all of this stuff gives us a language and also an information and some leverage on our practice. We can begin to understand what's going on and to begin to, to make some sorts of decisions about, about what to do. So I suppose it's, you know, in summary, it's just presenting the inherent complexity and subjectivity. I think many healthcare students think, think well, <clears throat> healthcare is the practice of science that I'm doing science with patients, like I'm just getting this information, this scientific info in the form of trials or physiology or biology, and I'm going to look at this stuff and then look at my patient and then do do what this what the kind of info, the biological info tells me to the patient. And as you know, healthcare practice isn't like that. Like it's more like social working, isn't it? Like it's more, mm. it's more, it's far more um, 
humanistic than, than that. So, and so that sometimes is just enlightening for them that, oh, okay, fair enough. I'll listen to your lecture. What were you saying about quality research being the best against them? <laughs> so, yeah, so, so I think it's just to get, it's to present them why this stuff is valuable. I mean, of course, all research is valuable. So understanding randomized controlled trials is valuable and quantitative kind of cross-sectional surveys is valuable and experimental biomechanical research is valuable too. It's all just valuable in slightly different ways. I think there's there's something sort of interesting in there that you, that you've you've highlighted uh, that that gap between technical knowledge and outcomes, and that really what we're trying to do is while we have this technical knowledge and we're never going to get rid of that. I mean, if you don't know the difference between someone's leg and their arm, there's a real problem. Um, but it is so much about what we do is about affecting another human being and mm. um, affecting either changing their behavior or um, trying to essentially just any, any sort of trying to produce an, an outcome. If we're touching them, mm. if we're assessing them, there's so much more going on there besides that, that technical application of that technical knowledge. And I mean, this is the same reasoning behind the the biopsychosocial model, a, per, a person centered way of practice. And I guess I'm, what I'm, taking from from what you're saying is that really the way that you've understood cause health isn't always really a, a game changer for you i mean you're already involved in qualitative research it was just a different way of reaching the same goal we mm. know we need to be uh use a biopsychosocial model we need to use a person-centered model but our research methods were one of these things that uh, and the way that we practice research is one of these barriers to to doing that and or at the very least it was a distraction you know if someone would say evidence-based practice and you know you've got this everyone trying to trying to be person-centered and then the research wasn't so i guess is, is that a good sort of summation of um how cause health has probably impacted you yeah quite and, and i think as you said it's you know person-centered care and evidence-based practice and the biopsychosocial model these are pretty synonymous now aren't they with healthcare like you'd be living in a cave if you're like oh what's that never heard of those before but there there's so many, so many firstly there, there's so many assumptions which are built within them and like any good kind of chinese whisper they just handed down and this is what the biosocial model is and this is what the person-centered care model is and this is what evidence-based practice model is that we don't i guess it gave us all a, a moment to pause and to think like so what are these things and like, what are the assumptions built into these these concepts and are there better ways to to describe them to conceptualize them so so i think it also just i think that what the the project did what course health did was to really just take a moment to to pause and to say right what in, in a, i suppose in a philosophical sense to ask some really searching questions you know what do you mean by evidence and people have been asking that before since i mean since aristotle but since ebp came out like people were questioning the nature of evidence but Core self did it in such a way, and especially the group of uh, individuals, to say, "Well, what do you mean by evidence?" and and this is why we think RCTs as being the gold standard to establish causation is problematic. And, this, and so, just I think it just it just asked some very searching questions of things which were commonly assumed, like that you know, it wasn't no one's saying that person-centered care is or isn't good. It's just, well, what does it really mean? Like, what does it mean to be person-centered? And what does it mean to be a person? And all these very deep questions, which you can, which sometimes, you know, aren't always that clinically relevant, but certainly as a, as a clinician, it gets you to stop and think a bit more about things that you think you know, but actually thinking about them or reflecting on them, that you might get a slightly different perspective on them. Hmm. 
Because I think I think that's something that I see a lot with with clinicians. It's sort of the the healthcare and education is sort of this fast moving train that everyone yeah. sort of gets chucked on, and we're not always um, we're not taught. So it's it's fair enough why people aren't doing it because we're not taught this. But it's it's that questioning those those deeper sort of topics, and as you said, sort of a bit more philosophical. Which you know I've had conversations with people with it, it seems uh, unrelated. It also seems um, you know very kind of uh, i'm trying to think of the good word good word for it but it doesn't seem like a, a job a role it seems very abstract navel gazing yeah mm-hmm. exactly well whenever we say philosophy but really i think what you know what you've highlighted there beautifully is that it's just about challenging assumptions you know is for example you know in a very basic way and this is not to sort of throw surgeons under the bus but i think they they sort of epitomize this sort of issue of technical knowledge versus application is that we always see people go to a surgeon and they're like great you're you're a car and we're just going to open you up and close you mm. back up and you know healthcare that's that's it um, but we see those outcomes from lots and lots of surgical trials at least i should say in the musculoskeletal field to to not be um, the be all end all it is you know in in some areas and that's where those assumptions we we can say hold true you know if you've got a blocked artery if you've um had a you know a um a serious fracture and and needs to be fixed or fix you mm-hmm. know um actually put back together for it to heal appropriately though those assumptions work really really well but you know in a lot of other cases it doesn't so in terms of yeah i was just gonna say i think just just with the philosophy you know why do i what, what's the point of philosophy or it's not important or i'd much rather learn about you know the anatomy or the whatever i think you know what came through as a course health project is that you know clinicians are doing we're doing philosophy all the time like the minute we ask a question i wonder what's wrong with this patient i wonder what their pain means to them i wonder um you know how they're kind of conceptualizing their problem you're kind of asking a question which is kind of philosophical you're asking about the nature of something and so I think a clinicians are doing philosophy without knowing it. Or they say, I wonder what, what information I should give greater weight to, you know, my clinical findings or this piece of research or what the patient's telling me. That's a, you're having to use it. This is questions around knowledge. And so I think you can't avoid it. Like, even if they say, I don't want to do it, you're doing it anyway. I mean, you're, they're doing it without, whether they want to do it or not, is what I'm saying. Is that part of being a healthcare professional is, is to have, you know, I mean, so you're both required to do it and it's, and it's invert, you're going to do it anyway. So once you acknowledge that it's part of practice, like it isn't this separate thing that you need to learn about, like go on a course and oh, I think I'll learn about, I know ears, it's not really part of my scope, but I might learn more about ears. Philosophy is not like that in relation to practice, that, that the implementation or rather philosophy informs practice. And so I think, I suppose one thing that comes, and that there's the first chapter of the book is really good at that, is those, you know, explicating those philosophical biases or at least laying out what they are and why you know why they're important because you know you can't just as a healthcare professional you can't just say well i'm just interested in the technical knowledge and propositional knowledge i don't i'm not interested in the kind of deeper stuff i just want to apply technical info to patients using kind of interventions well like you, you that's not how it works like the minute you even just de- even by deciding what intervention you're going to use or the minute you make a claim i'm just going to do that it's a kind of metaphysical claim that you've got you can't help it so once you recognize it's part of every healthcare professional's duty to own their own biases and own their own assumptions to be aware of those biases and assumptions then like they've got to engage with it you know so i think i i think i think 
you know, so I suppose one thing which would which which should which healthcare courses should do is probably just build in a bit more healthcare philosophy, not super, not massive programs, but just a unit or a bit of kind of touching on these things because it gives clinicians skills to begin to ask questions. And they may not get the answers, but at least they're getting better at asking the the right questions or at least the the, the salient questions for, for their practice. I think I think that's it. It doesn't have to be like this laboured, really detailed, um, you know, using lots of really big words and things. It's really just philosophy, you know, is really just good processes of thinking and challenging those assumptions and ideas. Yeah. And I think, you know, one of the, the topics we talked about is, and I think what you've sort of linked to nicely is that studies will often have biases in build and they're due to the way that you will view, view the world mm. or you assume like a good example would be any sort of study that takes a diagnostic criteria for a condition of um you know based upon just objective measures only or um if you're going to decide that um if you're going to include people or not include people in the study based upon an ultrasound finding um these are all you know biases about how you are mm. Um, essentially deciding what is and what isn't a condition, the cutoffs, the thresholds, and it's going to impact all of that down the line. And I guess, yeah. you know, if you're, what happens if you don't agree with that? And if you don't agree with that, it's going to, you know, you, you can look at it from the perspective of how does this then study fit? If we're going to take away this assumption or we change this assumption, how does it change the research? But it also it means that it can help explain why the outcomes might be different to what you see if you're taking a different approach. Yeah, quite, quite. And I think that insight into, into, in, uh, yeah, yeah. And like, it may not even change any of this stuff, like we said at the beginning, but there's value in just being aware of the position that where you're standing, like, even if you don't change where you're standing, you've got to stand somewhere like you've got to stand somewhere in relation i mean this is going to in a kind of i suppose in a epistemological sense in relation to knowledge that you just can't so well, i'm just i don't have a view like, well you do have a view everyone has a view everyone is taking a position but whether or not they know the position they're, that they're standing in um is a different thing and i think you know it's that reflexivity just knowing where you stand and where that what perspective that position is giving you and what you're not seeing in that position and you know and you might be cool with not kind of seeing other stuff and just seeing one particular view of practice and that might be okay that's fine but at least you're aware of it i think that's what it is it's just that awareness that there are a multiplicity of different views different types of knowledge different types of evidence you're we might be you might be adopting one particular view and that's okay but at least be aware that your view is one of many different views on clinical practice and on evidence and that in itself is just is valuable because you can then uh, begin to critically evaluate your practice and i think you know to thinking about how that relates you know to, to what i've seen i mean i definitely see lots of really really well-meaning uh clinicians uh sort of educate and educators uh, running courses and talking about things because you know in their experience in the field that they're practicing in so let's let's take high performance sport for example uh quantitative measures and outcomes are going to be hugely va more valuable than it potentially in day-to-day -day practice because you think about the demands the athlete is is under um, when you're measuring muscle strength you've got all um, you know uh, output of force you can gain all of this information you have the environment to do so um, you have the equipment to do so you have people that are very compliant 
Um, it's a very, very set situation as well. So you're going to get a specific type of population, a very specific age set, and they're applying this way of practicing to that. That is very effective for that situation, context, population, everything. And but when they then come and teach a course, it's kind of a case of, well, great. Now we're going to apply that to that 13-year-old, um, you know, aspiring soccer player that you see. Now we're going to apply it to the 45-year-old who's, who's just wanting to run that, you know, half marathon, get that life achievement. And we see that it, it really doesn't work. It really, you know, people really struggle to apply. And I think that's a uh, a good way of sort of encapsulating that problem is that, you know, it, that person, you know, educator, um, that clinician might not be aware of the situation that they're in and why they're practicing. And it's not always what we're doing by asking people to think or, or, or challenging the way that they think to change their position. It's sort of a way of saying, well, no, actually, we just want you to highlight and be aware of where you are. And mm-hmm. I see, well, you know, I see a lot of people go away on weekend courses and a lot of people come back and don't see that it works or or figure out why. I mean, if we look at, um, you know, some of uh, Louis Gifford's sort of stories about manual therapy and and coming to to Adelaide and, you know, spending time, uh, I'm very bad. I'm pretty sure it was Maitland in in South Australia. Correct me if I'm wrong. Um, And he would find that, you know, it was where he was doing it, it wasn't, it wasn't working but when you know you sat in with Maitland it was so there was so much more going on it was his mm-hmm. um demeanor it was his way of interacting every it was this whole sort of context and process that that he brought as an individual that made that that technique mm-hmm. much more effective I think that's sort of a good encapsulation another good sort of encapsulation is that that if you know Maitland potentially was a bit more aware it would be a case of well this all works and yeah it works really well because of all these other things that I'm potentially bringing to that equation. And that's not saying, I think there's that argument there of, Oh, it doesn't work then because we're aware of all these other things in this context and it's very specific, but there's knowledge to be gained from that as, as well, because it still did lead to a positive outcome. And I think, so, you know, you can allude to context there and contextual factors kind of that, that, you know these this this in this um, atmosphere around the treatment is what is described. So, kind of friend, colleague, co-author of mine, Giacomo Rossettini, who's a physio in Italy that's done quite a bit of work on contextual factors and has been on the podcast actually. Um, that you know, coming back to kind of having a, an insight or some self um, awareness of w- where you are in relation to everything in your practice, like where you're standing in relation to your your relationship to your patient to knowledge to your to your kind of skills you can begin to manipulate them if you like you can begin to change them you can begin to influence them if you know how you're if you know how you're influencing your clinical practice or your contextual factor for example you can begin to make some adjustments to your behavior your communication your kind of connection with the patient your choice of intervention and hopefully for the better rather than just being kind of naive and um, just not aware, you know, just dog head, you know, dog headed, big headed, dog headed, I don't know, whatever, big headed, whatever. I mean, that's the as well. Whatever I mean, but just blindly kind of doing what you've been told, not really thinking critically, or going on a course and saying, well, this is it, and I'm just going to do this skill the next on Monday when I come in. Um, so I guess, yeah, all of this stuff it just comes back to having is to and you know your problem is you get down you end up just sitting alone on a sofa on a Saturday night just thinking about your practice and <laughs> overly reflecting 
don't do that. But I think, uh, and you can go down rabbit holes, you become nihilistic and think, well, none of it works, useless, I've been there. But I think, you know, a kind of an appropriate level of critical self-reflexivity is, is, you know, healthy for any healthcare professional. Hmm. So I'm thinking in terms of really sort of bringing it, uh, this discussion really into the clinic. I think we've highlighted that there's a, a high level of uncertainty in clinical practice. Course health is about bringing a bit of a framework and highlighting that that really is okay because, you know, it's highlighting that we don't have the the evidence to make these big causal claims that there is a lot of gaps in our knowledge, that there's lots of uh, different sources of information that we need to take into account if we're going to manage this individual and and mm. and be right so it's sort of almost uh, a conclusion uh, i came to with with another sort of clinician was it's almost like healthcare is is in clinical practices a uh, best guess uh so how in in terms of your patients so if someone's come to see you how do you navigate that encounter knowing that or i guess the first stage first step would be would you agree with that sort of uh, assessment and summation and second how would you go about handling that sort of uncertainty and and that in, in clinical practice um i think firstly as we said is is acknowledging that uncertainty and so students come out of you or while we come out of you know point of graduation the world is generally black and white like this intervention maps to this particular diagnosis or this particular pattern of physical findings you just apply the information like a piece in a puzzle and everything should be well and so course health as you said not only does it present the uncertainty, just, so just knowing that 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 the uncertainty is okay, like it's inherent in practice, makes you more comfortable with it. A bit like going to the GP and saying, "I've got this lump. What's the lump? Oh, it's normal. Don't worry, everyone's got it. The lump's still there." But you're much cooler about it. You're much more reassured in a way, and that just in itself, you can kind of begin to manage some of those emotions. So I think, with in terms of the uncertainty and course health gives you not just says it's okay of course it gives you some pathways to begin to pursue and some kind of strategies to begin to pursue um clinically i think what came what came through with me as so that the the book as you as you I'm sure you're aware is divided into two the first six episodes the first six chapters are kind of philosophical chapters the remaining nine eight nine are with clinicians about talking about course health and disposition, dispositionism and how it affects their practice. So, but what came through when speaking to the clinicians and one patient, Christine Price, I mustn't forget her, is that, so Matthew, Roger, Kerry, so Matthew Lowe, Roger, Kerry, um, Kai Brignard, Rafe and, and, and uh, Tobias, a whole lot of them, was time, like it was really simple, just time, spending time with people, like giving people space to, to co-construct this story this causal story just not rushing in to to give give answers or ask questions and so and I've always had kind of long appointments so I can can just over an hour for an initial patient and then 45 minutes for follow-ups which is kind of atypical with osteopathy it's kind of a bit shorter maybe half an hour appointments so but I think I was I was so rather than rather than just spending a lot of time listening to the patient and thinking oh god i should really get down tonight the actual treatment should nine or the physical assessment or the manual therapy and feeling a bit guilty and like oh it's a bit awkward i'm much cooler about it now i'm like there's a good reason why i'm not rushing into doing those things 
and I really want to get an un an understanding. I mean, you, I want both not just me having, it, but both of us arrive at an understanding about why you're here, both kind of physically, geographically, why you're in this room, what's led you to the, to, to see me today, but also kind of experientially, what you know, how how is how has your problem arisen? How what's the story behind that? And and so I think it's it's a shift. Again, it's hard to say that I've ch shifted massively, but it's reinforced or gently nudged my practice to, you know, to, to, to focusing on that relational aspect of the patient, to, to be okay with listening and not, not even, not just listening, but just not speaking, just shutting up and being good with awkward, oh no, good with silences. And like, so I'm not going to ask, you know, let, let that pause go a little bit longer and patients will share what's important to them if you give them that space. So I think the, the biggest thing that I've taken away from talking to the clinicians that are implementing the theory, if you like, if, that's, if that is the case, or certainly aligned with the theory, was it, it was about time and like, and, and time, not just, not just time, but actually what you do in that time. And mm. all of them, what was what the theme, the common theme amongst them all was just that, you know, letting that story, that, that causal story to be constructed or emerge or wherever you sit with that so then once you recognize that you know like, okay well to let that causal story develop and to for me to contribute to that story and for the, to the patient kind of contribute to there's gonna be a set of kind of skills if you like and ways of thinking about information which i need to take on board so communication skills for example or listening skills which are typically you know thrust backwards because the technical skill that comes to the forefront is how well you can palpate the bones or deliver a particular manual therapy technique or whatever it is so and so then it becomes less uncertain funny enough when you listen to it is it you know when you when you when you listen to deeply listen to a patient and you, know, you arrive at some understanding some of that uncertainty becomes less uncertain like okay i understand a bit more now like you know I, i'm not saying it's 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 crystal clear but you're like okay i'm I, i've got a, a slightly better idea about where where to go together so it's often uncertain, I mean, not often it's uncertain, but it can also be uncertain when, you know, if you don't, if you, if you just rush in quick in a consultation kind of case history, you know, quickly do an examination, then rush in with the, with the treatment, I'm not surprised stuff's uncertain. You haven't really got the full picture. You know, you mm. really know what's going on. So, so yeah, that, that was one big kind of, you know, take home or take away from the, from the book and the, and the series. It's almost like we're, we as clinicians, um, the royal we, all of us, um, and the way that we're taught sort of pushes us to, to try and do that, to try and give the quick answer, to jump in, to, to provide that technical knowledge. And we want and to help. We want to help. Like, that's, we're, we're helpful people. And we want to help people, you know, cliche, but we do want to. Like, we, and we think we've got a set of tools that will help people. And I think that's the that's where that's the misstep. So although these techniques will help you or will help the person, I must do those techniques. Like this is the this is where the potency lies is in the is in the kind of the, the set of tools or interventions. And if I can listen a little bit too, that's okay. But really, the the essence of the effectiveness lies resides within the heel lift or the adjustment or the stretch or the tape. And it's something within those things, which if I just place on the person, something will happen. Mm. And 
you know, Corsell said, you know, it says it's not as so, you know, hold your horse is not as simple as that, it's far more complex. Well, it's, it's, I'm thinking, I, I don't love uh, like mechanical based um, uh, sort of examples because sometimes they can be taken too far. But I think that the, the, the simple one here is, is sort of like, um, you know, the, the young sort of mechanic quick to apply their skills versus an older sort of mechanic, um, you know, often, you know, as a, as more technically minded, you know, we, we can jump in quite quick and we want to have these, Oh, you know, you've got back pain. Oh yeah. I've got all these things up my, up my sleeve. Oh, you have heel pain. Oh yeah. yeah we can quickly, you know, we can do this really cool technical thing with an orthotic, but you know, it's what you're highlighting there is that when you spend the time and, and, you know, you have, rather than sort of just jumping in like with a car and, and sort of finding the, the first thing that you immediately see, or you're going to that go-to place where you're like, Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, they're having this sound. It must be here. And this is the thing. And there might be something there and that's potentially the, the, the issue. And then you fix that or you change that or you do something to that. But what you're sort of highlighting, if you take that step back, you know, potentially more of that sort of quintessential older mechanic, listen to what that, that person with the car, you know, or the motorbike or whatever is coming in and saying, saying, yeah, but it, it started around this time. This is what happened to it. Yeah. This is the change that it's made over time. You start to get more of that information and say, well, look, your car's 20 years old. There's going to be a lot of small things that are going to be, we're going to find definitely, um, which are normal. You know, it's a machine. It's going to, to change. Um, but here's your actual problem and here's the bit that you're actually, that we might need to address. And, and you know, we can do that in stages or we can um, think about maybe changing something small and see what happens. But having that sort of time and that space and that sort of step stepping back, yeah. I think, you know, a really interesting sort of uh, point because then yeah, you've collected more information and it's almost like we, we're also by not jumping in straight away, we're not focusing so hard on inserting a sense of certainty. Like if someone rolls in and says, this is what your problem is. Um, I think I wonder if patients would be so um, disappointed then or, 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 or uh, when they then go to see another person or another practitioner that they then wouldn't be looking for the answer because they're previously told that there is an answer by that yeah. rushing in and, and that certainty that someone's applied. And then the next person might do the same thing where, you know, from the start, if we were taking that step back and sort of, going, what if we just started with this or what if we, you know, tried that and then given the time for someone to make sense of it all. Mm. Um, Cause that's something I've definitely found in my practice is that, you know, providing little bits of information, patients will go, Oh, you know, what if, you know, this doesn't work out or what happens if, um, you know, the, uh, we aren't able to find an answer and they mm. ask some of these questions. And so I guess would that, would, would you agree with that sort of idea that maybe sometimes we're doing it to ourselves? That yeah, by... com completely. And I think you said lots of interesting things there. I think, um, what do I think? I think, you know, we talked about listening and I talked a lot about listening, but and you about giving information and i think some of that time like uh, you know asking patients so I, i'll have a view on something i'll have a perspective on on their issue based on what i've heard what we've um, kind of agreed as an understanding of what's going on maybe some results some clinical tests but i'm also really interested to know what they think about those things like because i i guess i take the view that i don't really know what the hell's going on with any of my patients right i, I kind of take the view i don't really know like i i'm often in clinics saying i have I know that there's nothing 
I know that there's no pathology. I say no. I'm 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 pretty sure there's no there's no kind of pathology or anything which which I'm which not knowing is 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 really putting them in, in immediate danger. But you know the kind of at least in our practice kind of somewhat benign non-specific pain which is benign in the sense that there's no pathology but has significant consequences in someone's kind of lived experience and kind of functionality all that stuff so i suppose what i'm saying is that i start from position i don't really know what's going on but and i kind of i i want to let them know that a bit but not to the point where they think this guy's bloody useless like i'm what waste of time that, that he's presented so much uncertainty to me that he actually doesn't know what he's doing okay so i think treating patients like adults and and sharing some of that uncertainty with them is is treats them like a like an like a grown-up assuming they are grown-up of course um doesn't treat them like an idiot but you're involving them in, in some of this some of this uncertainty what you can't what you don't want to do is say this oh, it's, just, it's all too complex i really have no idea what to do that you know that doesn't help them have any confidence in you either so it is quite a fine line between involving them in in that kind of clinical decision making and where the uncertainty lies but at the same time sharing maybe some of those certainties or more certain things and it might you might lean on some evidence or lean on your experience so listen we don't really know this we don't really know this so i'm but we do know this and you might follow up with we don't really even we don't even though we don't know this we don't really need to know it for, to, to make some decisions for you to have a good outcome i think presenter you, you want to package up some of that uncertainty which core self has made you comfortable with and present it to the patient but with all of this i'm always interested in what the patient thinks so coming back to me not having a clue i kind of you know i kind of I, it's a bit like what do you think is going on or what do, i've just given you my perspective or given you we together we've you know we've we've come up with some construction about what we think is going on i really like to hear your thoughts about that and i think giving them that opportunity not just to share their experience and to share their story but actually share their view on the constructed kind of diagnostic explanation or the causal story like what do you think does that make sense to you like does that worry you does it so again it's about involving them and by them articulating back their thoughts and reflections about what's just gone on again it begins to you know i think it's valuable it's kind of therapeutic with them just saying, okay and they talk through it i think so again i'm not making too much sense but there's something about it's not just a case of just listening but it's actually giving them the opportunity to express their thoughts in specific areas of the, of the clinical interaction where we would just presume that well we've arrived we've, we've um, arrived at uh, an understanding I'm going to get now go do this. I think that's doesn't go far enough. Right? I mean, I'm not saying every minute of the interaction you're saying, "What do you think? What do you think? What do you think?" Of course, there's clinical sensitivity there, or, or you know, it's based on the person. But I think at every, many stages, I'm interested to know what the patient thinks, particularly for this for these benign, non-specific things where very much the person's beliefs, attitudes, conceptions, experiences do play a, a fundamental role on their kind of trajectory in terms of recovery. I think you're highlighting that, that, I mean, whenever we argue for a shift in practice, and this is what I always find whenever you say, what about this? And someone goes, no, but we can't change that because of this. And it's like, well, it's not saying exactly that, that every, every moment of the conversation you were thinking about the practitioner, but you are mm. you're approaching the situation where you, you know, us as clinicians don't have the answer straight away. Mm. 
the spotlight is on the patient, not on the practitioner. You're starting with this blank slate. You're open to more information and collecting it all. And we know, you know, the, we're not the person living with the symptoms and making sense of it all. And so there's the two sides of it. One, they form a, a great base of evidence. Cause if you say to them, well, look, you know, let me explain to you, you know, this condition and this is sort of what's happening. And then when they say, ah, it's not sounding, you know, exactly like that or similar, or it's not completely making sense. There's potentially something to that, mm-hmm. that, you know, you might be wrong about this because we are making some inferences and some guesses based upon that's what mm-hmm. it is. I mean, look at, heart women and heart attacks is always the example I go back to. They're having these, you know, extreme um, symptoms. And, um, you know, we, we would just assume it's not a heart attack because mm. we only studied it in men. Um, so there's this research gap and it's, and so whenever we're taking, you know, symptoms and applying a, a diagnosis to them, it is always a guess based upon the original, um, you know, situation and context yeah. that those, um, that diagnosis was defined, but then once we've got all this information, then you're sort of making sense of it all. Then you're making, and you present, you're thinking about options and then you're sort of deciding together on the way ahead. So you're sort of then coming back and checking in again and saying, well, now that we've sort of a kind of agreed or, or reached a sort of an understanding on what we think the diagnosis is, we've got all these man- management options. Yeah. What, how can we re- reach a consensus on all of these options? And so it's it's not just about constantly them. It's sort of like you're you're highlighting your your um you know your approach is putting the spotlight yeah. shifting. Because there's nothing worse than you embarking on a course or a particular management um, direction alone without the patient, making promises or saying I think this will work. This will this will be the thing that will get you better. And you know, eight weeks time, they're worse or in the same position. They they blame you that well, you said this was going to help me, and like it hasn't helped me. It's as is the case with these problems. You know, the, the recovery is pretty unpredictable, goes up and down, and all that kind of stuff. So I think getting patients to say, like you said, is to as much as you can is to co-construct the the causal story together, and then begin to you present either you do it, you present some options perhaps or together you, you you arrive at some options you you then together decide on a particular approach and i suppose if it all fails as it may well do or you've got to make some adjustments at least it's kind of like yeah well you know that didn't work did it it's both our fault and i, I suppose it's not about shifting taking blame off me but it's the patient's very much involved you know because if you take the view that i don't have the answers i can't i don't know exactly what is the you know, there's certain you know I, if because if, if you recognize there's uncertainty in for example diagnosis then there's going to be uncertainty in an outcome which there is and so i think you can again it's about being in this together and so listen, i don't know exactly what what is going on but what, but there is some, I do think you know, my judgment is X, Y, and Z. We've, you, we, we had this discussion together. It seems like you're on board. Let's give this a go um, you know, and see where, where we are. Like I'm here to support you. And if we need to change it, we will change it. But again, it's just, it just begins to neutralize that relationship and to involve them as much as possible. Of course, some patients won't be ready for that. And then you might take a slightly different approach and you might kind of lead the way a bit and they might say, oh, I just don't know. I don't know. You, know, you make decisions. And I think that's cool too. Like you've got to be centered to individuals kind of preferences, but you've also got to be, you know, take the view that patients should be your 
should be encouraged to, to be involved in their own care. And that, that's not just doing a bunch of exercises, but actually involved in some of the choices which are to be made about their predicament, you know? Yeah, well, exactly. And it goes back to that sort of point we discussed earlier about how, you know, we are almost introducing these, this level of certainty or this level of changing the focus and saying there is a right or wrong answer or this is going to help you and, and making these kind of very certain declarations which is what's sending people on 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 these paths is where if we're open and we're evolving them in the decision you know immediately they understand the the points of uncertainty yeah. and why we're making a decision so when things don't work you can go back and go well this makes sense right now we've got yeah. this new information which is new to us because we, we, you know, it's going to change the way that we now look at this original problem and sets us in the right path. But we can only do that because we made the decision based upon the information we had initially. And so it, it's sort of almost, I always keep going back to the concept of that, that journey. Um, mm. uh, it is very much about, you know, focusing on the journey. Cause if we're always focusing on the destination, this will fix you because this is the destination we need mm. to get to you know, it very much, you know, if your plane's late, if it's all of these things are going wrong with your, with your train journey and all that sort of stuff, you know, it's much more frustrating than if yeah. you were going, actually, there's super nice scenery here. And yes, we're having to stop in this town, which is unplanned, but there's a lot of other stuff that we can do here and gain out of this. Um, but if you just focused on that destination, it's sort of like, well, why aren't I there? And why didn't you yeah, get I mean, uh, All of this, you know, it might sound with saying that, you know, well, this the way that we're describing clinical practice that why should patients see any health professional seeing as no one knows what they're doing but i think you know of, of course this is in the context of a well-developed therapeutic relationship where patients begin to you, you you build trust and it's also you know hopefully couched in hope and optimism as well like it's not you know that you are there to support them and that you're using kind of language and kind of context to Good patients got to have hope, right? If you just say, oh, "I just don't know what's going," on. this, you know, it's just I don't know what's going on here. You may never get better. It's all a bit uncertain. That's, I think we also have a duty to to be there to support patients and to be as optimistic and hopeful as as we can be. Um, so I think you know, just I guess to caveat all of this, it's to say that this occurs within a relationship which is therapeutic and optimistic and hopeful and supportive. And I, I'm there. And even if it doesn't, even if it all fails. I'm going to be here to support you. Like you're not here alone. And I think that just being there and let them, and making them aware that you're there to support them and to go through this with them. That's, that's super important when presenting this uncertainty rather than them just being lost in the woods somewhere with all this uncertainty, like you're there to, to, to be there with them. The, the uncertainty is in, in the application not in our in our technical knowledge like i'm thinking you know i can i can say to someone with a rehab program you know i can help you get you want to get back to this this activity pain is your is your limiter you know we can get you stronger we can issue an orthotic we can change your footwear we can do all these technical things and i can help you know you find the way to, to exercise um to do that i can give you that prescription i can um make an orthotic that I think is going to do quite well technically. You know, if you've got heel pain, there are designs that we can make that will technically spend more time offloading, you know, for example, the plantar fascia or cupping, you know, the heel fat pad and doing all these sort of really technical things. The, what you're, you know, what I think the, the brilliant point that you've highlighted is that that still exists. It's just the, the application of that knowledge is, mm -hmm. is the uncertain point and going, well, if I do this, 
what is the outcome? And I'm yeah. not sure it's always going to be as reliable. Um, yeah. But, you know, you can coach that in, in definitely in hope. I think, you know, re, you know, put in podiatry rehab is not, um, you know, a big focus. And I think that's sort of been what's really helpful for me is because we can sort of go, expands us out of a, a process of having a technical skill set that is this will work or doesn't work. This footwear prescription mm-hmm. is either help or not. With rehab, you can go, I can get you stronger. I can get you moving more. I can get you moving differently. I can do all of these things that will have secondary benefits and that we can still lay some sort of certainty at, but is it always going to be the thing that maybe solves your pain or maybe solves mm-hmm. you this or maybe solves this direct thing? We're, yeah. we're not sure. So there's, there's, it's, it's a not as um, nihilistic and mm-hmm. as um, useless for at least from from my perspective, the way that I'm understanding it, but I can understand other people might be listening, going, but I know things, and why are these guys saying I don't know things? And I think I think patients pick up on that. You know, it takes a confident to, confident practitioner to present that uncertainty. You know, that I, I guess I'm able to do that because I'm confident in that I'm able to manage that, and and so I think it. You know, someone that's less confident will have to kind of present a more certain situation because it will just it's just too shaky they can't engage with that so i think what comes through with that is you know is is the confidence so when i present this uncertainty it is with confidence so i think i'm quite a confident clinician in so much as i'm quite happy to present the uncertainty and it doesn't freak me out Mm. and i don't have a scared look in my face so patients are like okay he's not freaking out despite this uncertainty I kind of trust him. Like he obviously he's got he's not an, he's not an idiot. And I think whereas if you present the uncertainty with just like despair on your face and you start crying with the patient, like that's not they'll just be like, well, you're no use to me at all. So I think you know, yes, it's it's there are some I suppose clinical rituals or clinical behaviours that that we can utilise. But like you know, it's a bit like if you've yeah, I think that it's engaging with that uncertainty face staring it in the face through cause health or through whichever means makes you less shy of it and um, are more able to to kind of face it with the patient without a a kind of overly concerned look and say despite this uncertainty or despite that we don't know this or or despite your pain might flare up and I'm not going to I'm not quite sure why it might flare up it just might flare up based on a gazillion reasons that is still okay like I'm aware I'm aware that might happen and there are some things that we can do to help obviously offset that or mitigate that but it might still happen and but you know you can reassure them and, and present some advice but i think yeah there's confidence within that and so if you speak to matthew roger the clinicians these are confident clinicians but also i think matt matthew Lowe describes it as epistemological humility like you're also aware of what you don't know and you're kind of happy to present that with the with the to present that to the patient and i think that they can pick up on on that confidence as well hmm I guess I'm, I'm we're opening up the clinical practice to all these factors as well. It also opens up a number of different approaches that we can take to this. So a lot of people might sort of think, um, oh, you know, how do we communicate this? Or it has to be communicated in the form of a diagnosis. So if someone says, you know, if I have a diagnosis, I can't give it to them, or I have to present, you know, in this structure and framework of the way clinical practice is, but um, or define to them at university or, or courses and postgrad and realistically, you know, clinical practices, you have, you know, 30 minutes, an hour, 45 minutes, whatever your appointment time is with a room, with someone in a room and you can do whatever the hell that you want, as long as it obviously doesn't 
you know, break registration standards. Um, and so the way that you communicate, the way that you go about these things, you know, is you have lots of options and I'm just thinking, you know, navigating and communicating that, you know, often I'll write flow charts or I'll write, you know, and I'll map out a whole scenario of, you know, this is sort of what the information we have and here's a bunch of different paths and here's the, you know, here's the different options based on your preferences. Here's the different things that we don't know and mm-hmm. where that uncertainty lies. And, and, you know, some people really engage with that um, mm-hmm. when they can see it in front of them. Some people are happy to accept it, but there's, you know, so much more freedom, I think, in all of that where you don't have to go, well, what is the diagnosis? Yeah. Um, because sometimes you can say, you know, differential diagnosis or, you know, I think it's this, I'm pretty sure it's this. I'm pretty sure it's also not yeah. cancer tumors. Yeah. Um, yeah some sort of serious um, pathology. I'm pretty sure you haven't fractured, you know, this bone. Um, so, you, you know, diagnosis can also be what it's not. Like there's yeah. so much freedom in this, in this approach that, that, that we're talking about that I um, has made it a lot, a lot more fun and a lot more yeah. rewarding to be a clinician. Cause it, it, you know, because it does definitely offset some of the negative stuff of, you know, when you get a scan back and you've just told someone that it's this condition and it's something different and you're like, mm-hmm great <laughs> here's a fun yeah. conversation i get to have exactly and it, like you said it's it presents that, that uncertainty when it's present it offsets that embarrassment and that's what comes to that embarrassment is just the lack of trust that you've got it wrong i mean you know patients trust and confidence is going to predict their outcome and so you want them to have confidence that you're going to be there to support them not necessarily you know, which is different to them having confidence that you've got all the answers and you will fix them. It's a slightly different, different thing. So I think of course you want them to have confidence in you in your in your clinical competence and that and I think also confidence that they trust you. Like they can see that you care about them. And I think that's another thing that just showing patients that it sounds so cliche that you know that caring, you know, not just caring kind of for someone, but caring with someone and like being there with them and and some of those I don't know, empathetic skills or um, kind of, yeah, those relational skills where, where, where you're, they, you're making it clear, you're really signposting. I don't necessarily know what's going on here, but what I, what you, what I do know, what I want to show to you is I really want to, like, I really want to help. I'll do it. I'll, you know, really go the world's end to try and, you know, work with you to try and make things better. So I think, you know, showing that you care, it sounds cliche and you, you it, it would seem that we would just, that's just we don't need to why why do we need to make that obvious it's clear we're all healthcare professionals surely it's clear that we care but i think sometimes in the busyness of practice you've got you know a room you know waiting for the patient in and out writing notes technical skills i think you know looking at some of the qualitative work patients often don't feel validated or listened to or feel like the clinician has really understood their their situation and or or his aren't given time to really share their their views or their their experiences so that's what the evidence tells us. And so we're going to be able to evidence-based practice. The qualitative work tells us that these are the patient's narratives about or their experience about healthcare interactions. Then we should take note of that evidence and say, okay, well, we've got to, to, to kind of make some adjustments to how we're interacting, the sorts of time we dedicate to patients and not just time, but what we do in that time. Like it's one thing to say, well, I'm going to spend two hours with patients and then just do a whole load of, you know, interventions or you know, technical stuff where we prioritize our focus and, and, our, and our time. So, so I think, yeah, it's just, again, coming back to me where this, where, how my practice might have shifted. 
it's being making some of these things which are are implicit in our practice a bit more explicit like you know showing that i care and saying some buzzwords which not buzzwords that sounds trivializing but saying some using some phrases which kind of touches on their experiences and and shows that i've got deep concern for them and will do what i can to help them you know Mm. even though i don't really know what's going on because it isn't there's nothing you know is there's nothing worse than being a patient. I haven't fortunately touched wood, haven't been a patient that often, but when I have been patients or when family members have been patients and they've seen consultants or various health professionals, you pick up on these things. You pick up on the patient or the clinicians that seem not to really care. They're quite dispassionate, kind of mainly about the medical tests or reports. And you're just like, ah, yeah, I don't really, I think this, you know, you know, I just don't, doesn't, doesn't sit well with me. I don't care how kind of technically skilled you are. It's not a nice experience. It's not kind of it's not a, in, can any healthcare interaction be enjoyable, but it's not a therapeutic interaction for me. When you've got other consultants, when you know they're confident and they and it's clear that they're technically competent, but there's a relational component to their care where they just connect with you. They present information. They're good communicators. They're empathetic. They involve you, and it's just a completely different experience which given depending on what the condition is might have quite a did might Im- impact the outcome <clears throat> if we're talking about back pain it might well impact the outcome yeah it's 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 not that they don't care it's just they're not caring about the things that are important yeah. to the person yeah. or they care about personalizing the care they just they just care about a part of it which you know not everyone's going to be able to distinguish between um, not everyone's going to feel like, or even if they do care enough that they're going to stay late and see you, if they're still not seeing you as a human, they don't care enough about, about yeah. you as an individual to provide care f- for you that that's helpful for, for, you know, I'm thinking the classic yeah. sort of cases, people, um, you know, either just getting orthotics or, or someone, you know, in the same way going, I don't believe in orthotics and I'm not going to give you an orthotic. And someone's like, but I feel like that's going to be the thing that helps. It's sort of like, you really seeing the person in front of you or you just focusing Mm -hmm. on something else, which is yes, good. You know, it's showing you care as much that you have these beliefs and stuff, but it's not, yeah, it's not caring enough that that person feels that way or or is really what they're looking for out of that relationship. Cause I definitely have patients that come in that just do not care. They're just Mm -hmm. like, do it, do it to me. I don't care what, whatever's the best. And it's like, that's great because that's, again, that we're, you know, we're, we're not, we've, our assumption is proven true that that patients, you know, the technical side of it is the most important because that's what that patient has come in with, but it doesn't apply to most. No. Yeah. And I think there's two points. I think with caring can be shown in in many different ways. It's not about hugging a patient, but it's also about caring that one way to show that you care is that you, you're interested in their perspective. What do you think about what I've just said? And a good example it's not a very good example, but you know, the diagnostic terms that float around MSK care, various conditions and diagnoses, which we pluck out and we often present to patients and say, well, you've got this. And we feel pretty good about ourselves because you're supposed to encapsulate what they're experiencing or that, what their symptoms are. And we say it and there, and, you know, I suppose having experience of that been given family and given diagnoses, which are kind of benign, but I don't know how benign they are, but they kind of freak me out. Like these are medical words. And there's no attempt, I suppose, to frame that diagnosis, that medical jargon in a way which is de-threatening or reassuring, or at least makes sense to me. So I think part of the way we can show that we care is to, is to, to recognize that patients 
how, will have their own kind of lens by which they make sense of this stuff and to check their understanding or to present information in a way which is individualized to them. That's showing that you care. Like I'm interested to, I'm interested in you as a person about what this thing means to you that I actually want to obtain your views about what I've just said. I'm interested in what you have to say. So that's one way of showing that, that you care. So I think caring can be shown. It's not just about, like I said, hugging or crying or being overly empathetic because that's not that's not right too but caring in the sense that you're you're deeply interested in this person's kind of first person experience like what is it like for you what is this like for you what do you think about this and those your example of people that say well you know i don't care just do it i don't care just do it you're right that's a bit of a flag to say well maybe you haven't got to go hammer you know spend time what do they think but there might come a point where the fact that they're not thinking about how they're conceptualizing their problem, that might well be a barrier and then mm. to their recovery. And so then you've got to say, I know you said you weren't fussed about this or you didn't care about that, but I've got a view, I've got some thoughts about this and how this way of thinking might be impacting your situation. You know, would you, how would you feel about me sharing them? And then you can like, open up a discussion. So, you know, patients come with back pain, I don't care, just do it, just do it. And, and the, but actually underneath some of that, I don't care as some unhelpful attitudes or beliefs, which might need unpacking. Hmm. I think this is a, I'm very aware of your time. I think it's probably a, a good, a good time that um, I think we've covered like so much um, and we've sort of coming back around in circles that I think really sort of highlights some really good, not only what the differences and changes in our practice, but we've got, I've got some really good examples and some really nice um, ways that we can start to, to implement into our practice. So, so thank you very much for, for coming on board and, and and having a chat and i guess I'd, I'd ask is there any sort of final things that you'd want to add to to this discussion and where we've taken it um anything i think i think just hammer home the same points which is to is just not to rush in to the technical stuff like of course technical skills are important and knowing how to take blood pressure is important and how to you know examine a foot or a you know, an elbow or a back or a neck, like there are some technical, which of course are important, but healthcare is more than just a, a set of competencies or a set of skills that there is a, there is a kind of, it's a human based practice. And we've got to, an understanding people isn't, you're not just doing it because it seems like it's a good idea. I feel like I should do it because it's like, you know, person-centered care and all that. There's actually value to it. Like it's a women's situation that by spending time listening asking questions, but not just focusing questions on, does it hurt here? Do you have pins and needles? Do you get this? Not medically focused question, but questions about what do they think about that? And what do they understand? You had a scan, for example, what did that scan mean to you? You know, or whatever it might be. So really trying to get their their perspective or some insight into how, what, what kind of purchase they're getting on, on these things. It has value. It's not, so it's not just a good and nice thing to do, but this is what came through from the, the series is that, that there's actually there's actually causal information in there which will help you make some decisions about the sorts of inter interventions you might decide to apply with your patient you know so you might say actually in the context of your causal story that i've just spent half an hour creating with you it seems like the heel lift which i thought initially i was going to just chuck out in on your gift to you may not be a good idea there are some other options which seem to which might relate better to what you've been telling me so I think just giving it that time and letting it develop and, and just being comfortable with not doing, just not doing anything, <laughs> just sitting back, like not feeling you have to give advice, 
you've got to give the answer. I've got to do the intervention. If I don't give the, the intervention or if I don't do the thing, the healthcare thing, then I'm not really, you know, the healthcare intervention or examination or whatever it is, then I'm, they're not getting their money's worth or I'm not, really, I'm not really doing what they want. And then asking them what they expect. Like, what are you expecting from me today? And again, we're going to a whole other thing. You want me to finish up, but, but it's to say, <laughs> you know, like some patients don't want to have heel lifts or they don't want that. Or they don't want manual therapy. We presume they want these things. And we just say, what do you, you know, so again, it's all about trying to get their perspective. What do you expect? I'm interested in what you're expecting, what you want from today, rather than me thinking, well, this person wants this and they want to have manual therapy. They want to have a heel lift. They want to have tape and whatever it might be. But just again, giving, you know, equalizing that relationship and being deeply interested in what they think and what they want. No, I think, I think uh, as, as a summation, it's, it goes back to that principle. Once you have time, there's lots of these little discussions that we can have, you know, on expectations and all we can take this in different ways. But the real frame is once you give it time and you give them the ability to talk, what's important to them, yeah. all of these other things will sort of fall a bit more into place or you'll figure them out as you go because yeah. you've, you're not rushing in. Yeah, cool. And patients love it. Patients are like, and really, again, you want me to finish up, but I'm not giving you the opportunity, is to say patients will often say, yeah, I don't know this. I'm not there when they get home, but I'm hoping that they say, or they think, God, this guy really listened to me. Like he was really, he really was interested in what was going on. He just didn't see me. He just didn't jump to my back of my neck and start prodding around with that on my foot. But actually he was really interested in me. And, and if nothing else, there's, you know, there's therapeutic value there. They feel like they've been cared for um, and that they've been listened to him and given the opportunity to articulate, to verbalize what's going on. Um, so yeah, now I'll, I'll let you finish now. <laughs> yeah. No, no. Don't ask me any more questions. In fact, don't say anything else. <laughs> <laughs> We're just going to hard cut it here. Yeah. Oh, well, no, thank you very much for coming on board and, and, and sharing your perspective across, like we said, you know, the, the multiple different sort of hats that, that you wear. I think there's a, there's a amazing amount of, uh, examples and nuance and, and everything that you've you've presented that that I'm hoping people find really helpful. I definitely um, it definitely all gels with my experiences, uh, and I, I'm there is that concern that we just both have the same biases. But I think there's there's a lot of uh, value, then, especially things that I've taken from from this chat that that I'm going to think about and I'm going to apply a bit more consciously to to my practice. So thanks again for for coming on board. Pleasure. And yeah, thanks, Alex. No, not a problem. I guess the, the big thing is if people want to find out more from you or hear about more about your projects, where, where can they find you? I'm on Twitter and I think I forget my handle, but it's like at Dr. Underscore Oliver. There's too many underscores, something Thompson, PhD, something like that. Find me on Twitter. Um, but I would just, I think just my, my interest now is really the podcast. I think it's got, because it aligns with so much of what we've been talking about. And so I divert people to the words matter podcast, which just going to goes into all the stuff that we're both interested in around research evidence and and um so that's kind of twitter and instagram and all those usual stuff i'm around <laughs> yeah you, you've got a website as well the words matter yeah words matter hyphen education.com is my is, is is the website for that so you can find me there too yeah and i can definitely vouch for the for the podcast 
quality. And um, I've even been on other interviews with other people talking about Cause Health oh, cool. and to, to advertise this podcast mm-hmm. and this this thing. And other and other people have railroaded it with, no, no, you got to see Oliver, Oliver Thompson. Oliver Thompson, <laughs> his, his podcast. And I'm sitting there going, thanks, guys. But this is it was too. stiff competition. <laughs> oh. As usual, everyone, thanks for, for joining us. If you've made it this this far, thank you for, for for sticking it through. And hopefully you've gotten a lot out of this. If there's any questions, comments, um, anything for, for myself, for Oliver, uh, please send them through. We'll be happy to to flesh anything out if uh, anyone needs it. But uh, yeah, thank, thanks again for, for joining us and uh, we'll see you all soon. Cool. Cheers.